0: How is that? Oh hi! There we go all right, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the Book of Jude right near the end um, before we begin here, let me just uh, let me just say a couple of things this first, uh, thank you to everyone who was involved in the Christmas season for us, uh, whether that was decorating or the food, the banquet, the preparation, the Christmas Eve service uh, who. Everyone who helped, thank you. It was uh, very necessary to have you, uh, and and it was just a, a wonderful blessing. And so we just want to say thank you for that as well. Uh, Shaylan Swanger in Saskatchewan visiting her parents, but we just wanted to express a thank you uh, for the gift that was given to us last Sunday. That was overwhelming to say the least. Um, this first year in Banff has been a dream. It's awesome, uh, and it's great to. Be able to serve alongside such wonderful people and uh, and yeah i just thank you so much uh, for your care for us it has been incredible so as we begin here in jude is the reason that we're here uh, is i have this sunday and next sunday that were kind of unknown sundays and then i'm gone for two weeks and then we're starting a new series after that on discipleship and we're actually going to unroll out uh, a whole discipleship plan that we're going to have as a church and so for these two Sundays, I wasn't 100% sure kind of where to go. And originally I kind of had planned just kind of a one off and then another one off, and, and I just don't like those. And so I wanted to have somewhere to build to. And so I know Pastor Jim went through this about a year and a half ago, uh, but if you're anything like me, is last Sunday's hard enough to remember. So hopefully uh, this isn't overly familiar with you, and hopefully I just didn't steal exactly what Jim had to say. Um, But what we're going to do is this Sunday we're going to go through these first 16 verses and then next Sunday we're going to finish it off. Uh, And there's a lot in Jude that's really interesting and and I'm sure Jim did a very specific job of trying to deal with some of what you'll find in here that you actually don't find anywhere else in Scripture. There's an interesting thing about uh, Enoch in verse 14. There's another interesting thing about uh, the archangel Michael dealing with the devil, and the disputing of Moses' bones. And, and some of those are very intriguing, very interesting. You don't find it elsewhere, and we're just going to completely ignore it. So uh, the only reason we're going to ignore it is because it's, it's, it's totally secondary to what the text is going to show us. And I don't want to get sidetracked on things. There's a, there's a passage that Paul writes to Timothy in his letter, and he says, don't get stirred up by genealogies and some of these divisive things, uh, all that does is breed quarrel. And he says, no, focus on the gospel, focus on the truth, focus on what we know. And so that's what the goal is as we go through this is, yes, there are some interesting things in here that that honestly I'm just going to completely ignore just for the sake of time. If you want to have conversation about those things, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but for this morning's purposes, and next week, we're just going to deal with a couple of the main themes. So we're going to read the whole letter here this morning. Just It's not very long, uh, and you'll kind of see where we're going. So starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who were called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angel who did not stay, excuse me, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority. All right. Okay. Uh, Anybody want to grab me a battery? Let's try this again. Sorry, everyone. Let's try that. Is that working? All right, so everything's falling apart. Let's pray. Uh, God, this morning, thank you that you are here, that you, don't, that you don't need batteries to work, that you can just impart truth to our hearts and our minds. And so, God, we pray that despite what little things might uh, not be working the way we anticipate, would you be at work in our hearts right now as we study through these words. So, God, thank you for them. Amen. So, in Jude, the beginning is very interesting. Uh, Typically, when you read through one of these, there's there's an opening greeting, which you see here, and and Jude kind of says just a couple of things, and then you kind of get into the bulk of the letter. And usually, that's where the focus is. But we're going to spend quite a bit of time here uh, on verses 1 and 2, because you're going to see that this frames where Jude is going for the rest of the book, and it's central to not our only understanding of the gospel, but our understanding of God himself. So, when you start and you look at this, you go, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. Okay, so Jude is a servant of Christ, he's a brother of James. At first glance, there's nothing really to, to consider there. We just can kind of move on. But if you start to kind of do a little name tracking and start to figure these things out, what you realize is this James, according to Galatians one19 who is Jude's brother, is the same James that wrote uh, the book of James in the Bible that we read. And so what's interesting there is that James is actually whose brother? Jesus. And so Jude, likewise, is a brother of Jesus. And yet Jude doesn't decide to State that, and neither does James actually in his writing. And so you have here Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And in my mind, it would seem like if he had claimed that he was Jesus' brother, that he would have some authority to speak on behalf of. And he could say, Look, I'm the brother of Jesus. Immediately, you need to give me some authority because I understand. I was there. I saw. I'm part of this. But what we read is the opposite. And my argument is going to be this, is that Jude starts, he begins with humility. He understands that he has no authority just because he was born as the brother of Jesus. Actually, his authority comes in that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And that's the same for us, is the authority that we have is not based on our birth order or whether we had affluent parents or any of kind of those worldly markers, but our authority stems from the fact that we are servants of the Messiah and we have his word written to us, and so we can claim this with authority because it's God's, not ours. When we start, and perhaps you've made this mistake before. But when we start having a conversation with somebody, and and we start to turn things towards Jesus, and, and, and we do everything we can to tell that person why everything they believe is wrong, and why everything we believe is right, usually that conversation doesn't end very well. Because when we start with this arrogance where we go, I know what's right, and even if that's true, it never really ends well. And even in kind of normal day-to-day life, we, we, none of us really like to be told, even by those who are in authority over us, you're wrong, I'm right, deal with this. It's just not an effective way to communicate. It doesn't help. And so here Jude says he's a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Starting with humility. I'm going to explain in a few minutes here why starting with humility is essential for our understanding of the gospel. And he says this, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That sentence frames out the rest of the entire book. And actually, if you flip ahead, and we're not going to get there this morning, but if you flip ahead to verse 24, you read something very similar. Now, to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. This is the same idea called by God and kept by or kept for Christ. Because that's the whole theme of James is that we are called by God and we are kept by Christ. And so when you read something like this in Scripture where the beginning and the end of this kind of same message, we call that, the biblical term for that is an inclusio, everything found within that exists to strengthen that statement or that argument. So everything else that we read here is trying to show us that we're called by God and we're kept by Christ. And there's a huge reason for that, is we forget and we think that we are can earn salvation. That's just the reality of the hearts of mankind. No matter what it is, we think that if we work hard enough, we'll get rewarded for it. And the message of the gospel is exactly opposite of that. In fact, the message of the gospel is we screwed it up and God's the only one who can fix it. So no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put into something, that effort and that your, your own desires to make things right cannot, but that relies in God. And we know that we read those things otherwhere, or other places in scripture, but it can be so easy to forget those things. It can be so easy to say, yes, I know that it's, it's by grace that we've been saved, but I still got to prove it, don't I? So we're going to talk a little bit more next week, but a little bit this week as well, about this idea that we're called by God and then we're kept by Christ, and how he does the work and we don't. And that's going to be crucial to the rest of this letter. What Jude is doing is he's recognizing, first in verse one, through his humility of saying he's a servant of Christ rather than claiming his kind of birthright in that. And then also that he is called by God and he is kept for Christ, is he's recognizing that he is completely unworthy of salvation. And that is essential for us. When we come face to face with God, we have to understand that we are completely unworthy of his love and his grace. And that will then change how we view what grace and mercy really, really is. In Ephesians 2, I want to read to you these verses. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's just one of many sections of Scripture that really hammer home to us that we were dead and God made us alive. And so at the very crux of it, something that we need to ask, and perhaps something that we need to ask more and more often Do I really believe that salvation is a gift from God and that he reached down to me in my depravity when I had no desire to even acknowledge that God existed and he reached down, he loved me and he grabbed me and he picked me up? Or do I believe that, no, I recognized my own sinfulness. I recognized my need for Christ and I was the one who turned towards him. Those two are very polar opposite and that second view of it which is the human idea is that is where we think we've got to do enough. We've got to have enough of the right things in our lives to prove what we believe. If we think that saves us, we misunderstand all of the gospel and, and more importantly, we misunderstand God. And if we start to misunderstand God, things start to get really, really shaky really quickly. Now Jude then begins kind of the bulk of the letter by saying this. He says, I, I wanted to write a letter of encouragement to you. Right? Jude says, I, I wanted to just share in our unity that we worship Christ together. And that was kind of his goal, but obviously the Holy Spirit kind of over, overwhelmed him to the point where he said, but, but, I, but I have to deal with this issue. There's something that's happening. And we don't know exactly what the issue was. We know in more of a generic sense what was going on. And so the generic sense is this that people were taking the grace of God, they were flipping it, and they were turning it so that it was licensed for them to do whatever they wanted. Does that not sound very much like today's world? Is within Christian evangelicalism right now is so much attack is happening and, and not limited to, but specifically, which you see it's a similar issue here in the idea of sexuality is that I should get to do whatever I want because this is what makes me happy. This is how I find enjoyment. This is what I want. This is what I'm going to do. And God's grace should cover that. That's the argument that's happening here. They're looking at it with this sense of sensuality. They're They're perverting the grace of God. So in other words, they're taking that grace, they're flipping it, and they're saying, oh, there's grace for that. That's okay. You can do whatever you want. God's grace covers that. And that teaching sneaking into the church here that's happening there was, was dangerous, and it's happening now, and it's just as dangerous. Before we get into kind of the theological components, let me just explain it to you from this context. Is imagine when I was standing um, face-to-face with Shayla on our wedding day, and she's giving me her vows. And she says something along the lines of, let's say she says that I, she promises she will always love me and that she will always forgive me no matter what happens in our marriage. And so then her vows are finished, and then I look at her and I go, okay, because this is the vow you've made to me, now I'm going to take advantage of that forgiveness. And I'm actually going to live as selfishly as I possibly can to do whatever I want, whenever I want, because you've vowed before God and all these witnesses that you are going to forgive me no matter what I do. So now I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. can live however I want. Could you imagine someone saying that after the other person? We look at them and go, that would be completely, completely crazy. Her love, her forgiveness, and her chosen forgiveness, her, de- her decision to forgive despite what I'm going to do, should not make me look at it and go, oh, I have license to do whatever I want. What it should do is it should open up my eyes to the realization of just how much this person loves me. And so my response should in turn become one of where I want to serve and honor and bless her because of how much she loves me. Not so I can earn it because, and those of you who are married, you'll understand this. The longer you are married, the more you realize how little you deserve the love and forgiveness that your spouse gives them. And yet the more we recognize that, the more we see our own selfishness, the more we have to repent of our own sins and our own things in our lives that we chose instead of our spouses, the more it helps us to realize the love of God, the love that Christ offered for us. Because marriage, and you've heard me say this lots, marriage exists to show the covenant relationship between Christ and his church. And so if you're a Christian, then your marriage exists to show the world the unlimiting forgiveness and love that you will offer that person because that's what God's given to you. And so when I know that I have my wife who will forgive me no matter what, that doesn't make me want to do wrong things. It makes me want to honor her more. That's what Jude is saying here, is you're perverting grace. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, is should we sin more so that grace could increase? And what does he say? By no means. He's saying, you're misunderstanding what that grace is. That grace is meant so that you change how you live. Not so that you can earn your salvation, but as a response to the love that is given for you. Certain people, he says, have crept in unnoticed. And this is what's happening in our Christian culture. There's so much teaching out there that sounds really good that has nothing to do with scripture. You see, the lie is easy to spot, right? When somebody just outright says something that you know is wrong, you can go, hold on, that's, that's not good. I know that that doesn't fit with what the gospel says. But when people start to pair a little bit of this and a little bit of this and they take bits and pieces and parts of Scripture, and then they start to make it say something that it doesn't intend to say, that's where danger comes. And we're probably all guilty of these types of statements. But sometimes you'll hear uh, teachers and they'll say things like, you know what, you deserve this, you deserve to be happy. Which Who's that about then? Is that about God or is that about me? And more than that, if I believe the statement that I deserve to be happy, then I assume that, first of all, I know what I need to be happy. But what the gospel teaches us is that God is the only thing that's going to satisfy, and you can fill your life with every other possibility of things that can, you think can make you happy, and all those things will always be temporary. All of those things inevitably will fail, and you'll look at it, and you'll go, well, money doesn't matter anymore. Fame doesn't matter anymore. Whatever thing you want to fill in the blank, it won't matter anymore. And so how do we then address and, and deal with, with these issues where, where core doctrine is being twisted just a little bit, and so it, it still sounds good, but it's not. And in fact, I came across a, commentary, a commenter, excuse me, who in verses 3 to 5, this is my paraphrase, it basically said this, is that Jude wasn't dealing with people who had walked away from Christ or who weren't Christians, he was trying to correct some bad theology of those within the church. And if you read those verses, that doesn't sound like that at all. It says people have crept in unnoticed who were long before designated for destruction. Does that sound like he's talking about believers? Then the examples that he gives, I want to remind you, right? He says Jesus called his people out of Egypt... And then what happened? They sinned over and over and over and over again, and then what happened? You don't get to go into the promised land because of your disobedience. So that doesn't sound like a really positive example. Second example is even more condemning, where he says, there's the angels, and those who chose to follow Satan are condemned for eternity in hell. Okay, that is pretty clear. It's hard to misread that. Sodom and Gomorrah completely destroyed because of their sexual immorality. Is it's clear, Jude is saying, these people are coming in to try and wreck everything within your church, and it's your responsibility to spot the error, to see it, and to proclaim God's grace, not a perverted version of his grace. He says this in verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Just before I get to an example that I want to share, and I struggled with this all week, but, but just before we get there, I've loosely quoted this thing by Tozer many times, but I just want to read it to you directly here. Because Tozer shows the importance of this. He says this, Any false teaching must begin with the wrong concept of God. Cannot be otherwise. God is what God is, and we better learn what God is and then conform our teaching to God. If we take any of the attributes of God away, we weaken our concept of God. We don't weaken God, but we do weaken our concept of God. Any wrong idea of God is bound to give us a wrong idea about ourselves. We have to believe about ourselves what God says about ourselves. Believe that you are as bad as God says you are, and believe that you are as far from Him as God says you are, and then believe in Christ who can come as near to, you, to him as he says you can. It all has to start with the realization that I don't deserve anything. Well, that's not true. I do deserve one thing. I deserve hell for my disobedience. That's the only thing that I deserve in this world. Every other thing that happens to me is the hand of God on me, is his grace towards me. I don't deserve something good just because I worked hard for it, how many people in this world have to walk five, six miles just to go get clean water every day and bring it home? And then I sit there and I go, but I worked really hard today. I deserve something crazy. Just because you work hard doesn't mean you deserve anything. And when we start to understand that, and so Tozer says, when we start to have a correct understanding of how holy God is and how guilty we stand before him, that starts to change how we view ourselves. And we will no longer look at God's grace and be, this is is given to me so that I can have enjoyment and fun and pleasure, and that's the end goal. No, the end goal is to be in love with Christ. And if I can love him more, if I can learn how to, be in a deeper relationship with christ all these other things in my life are going to take care of themselves that doesn't mean i'll get what i want all the time but it means i'll draw closer to god more and more and more sorry back to verse eight relying on their dreams they defile the flesh rejecting authority and blaspheming the glorious ones i'm going to do my best to explain using a very current example that's happened in our culture. And, and please hear this correctly, because I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to say anything negative about the individuals involved. I'm trying to deal with the incorrect teaching that came involved in this. You may have read about this online. Is about three weeks ago, a little girl, Um, I think she was three or four years old. Her name was Olive, and she passed away. Now, her mom is on staff at Bethel Church in Redding, California. And Bethel has some very dangerous theology. And in that, what happened is the mom and the dad believed that that day as she passed away, that they had a vision from God, that God had promised that he was going to raise this girl from the dead. And so they called on the entire church, and this is a mega church, and and got onto social media and went all the way across the whole world, that people would gather together so that God could do what God promised that he would do, that he would raise this little girl from the dead. Well, just a few days ago, the church said that they're finally proceeding with a memorial service for this little girl because God hasn't answered their prayers. Now let me just, again, I don't think it's wrong to pray for a miracle. I don't. I'm not trying to point the finger at these parents and say, this is crazy, you can't ask God to do that because, frankly, God can do whatever he wants. What my concern is, is when we start to believe things where we say, In a vision, God told me he is going to do this so that he can demonstrate his power to the world. And then you gather people and thousands of people to pray for something because you said, God told me this would happen and he's told me this is what's going to take place. And then it doesn't happen. So what do we do with that? The Old Testament was very specific. It said, if anyone speaks what they think is the words of God that does not come to pass, they're to be stoned to death. You see, to God, it's very important that the words that we declare when we say, God told me, that we speak it in truth, not in what we think. You will never, I hope, hear me come up here and declare to you an extra biblical message from God because I don't believe that that's how God works. In Hebrews, it says that long ago, God spoke to us through his prophets, and in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, is we have everything that we need. Peter says everything we need for life and godliness is found within the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying God can't give direction in your life when you pray, God, which job should I have? And he can make something very abundantly clear to you. But I'm saying God will not say something like this and and I've heard those pastors at Bethel say this where they've come up on stage and they've said God has declared to me something that the angels in heaven haven't even ever heard and I'm about to give it to you. That is not how God works. God has given us his word so that we know who he is and we can understand who he is and that's what Tozer is saying to us that any concept of God that is wrong comes from a wrong understanding of God and this book is the only thing to show us the truth of who God is. and So I'm not trying to throw these parents under the bus. My heart hurts and breaks for them that they lost this little girl. But honestly, what hurts me more is that they bought into a theology where they think that if they claim something that God has to do it. See, here's the thing is, God's already shown the world that he has victory over death in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead. He forgave all of our sin. And he shows us that he is the way to eternity. And so, yes, death is painful and it hurts. And I I don't think it's wrong to hope that someone could be brought back from the dead. But to believe that God told us that God is going to do this so that he can speak his power to the world when God's already shown that power to the world. That's huge. here's the promise that we have in scripture is that if we are found in christ that even though we die we still will live that little girl olive if she confessed christ as lord her parents have nothing to worry about one day they'll be with her again that doesn't make the grief go away instantly that doesn't make the process any shorter to go through death is hard but just like in the scriptures, saying people rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority. What authority? The authority of scripture. Is if you ever hear someone come and teach something that doesn't sound like scripture, go to scripture to make sure what's true and what's not true. Because there is not one person on this earth that speaks with greater authority than the word of God. So if you were ever in a church and a pastor comes up and they'd say that they can supersede what Scripture says, they're not looking for the interests of God. They're looking for fame. They're looking for ego buildup. They're looking for something that's not what Scripture says. And so likewise, if I ever come and if I ever say something where you go, that doesn't doesn't sound that that's right in Scripture, well, your responsibility is to come and to confront me with that. Because I am not above reproach in that sense, is this is true. And if I ever teach something that is wrong, then I need to be corrected of that just like anybody does. And so Jude says to his people, look out for those people who are coming in. Here's how they do it. They rely on their dreams and they take grace and they pervert it. They start doing things that, that are more about themselves than it is about God. And this is the very core of the gospel, is that the gospel is about God, not me. In fact, all of Scripture exists that while it's written about men, it's written so that we would understand who God is. That's the purpose of it. And so as we read through it, we need to be aware that within our own local body, within our own church, that this, these words are what we live and what we die by and nothing else. Jude continues, and he says, these are, they're hidden reefs, right? He uses that imagery. Uh, If you've ever been on a boat uh, amongst some reefs, um, it can be a very dangerous thing. I used to be a fishing guide, and there were several times where I was driving the boat through, and you, you know the lakes, and you know exactly where you're supposed to go, but the rain changes the water levels, and you're never really sure. And I remember several times going through this one place, and thinking oh this is fine that's deep enough i can make it through that only to wreck the boat motor boss didn't like that very much and what's the reason that i did that because i looked at it and i said that danger's not that dangerous i read a story once i don't know if this is true about a truck driver or truck driving company and he was interviewing a few different people about who he was going to hire and he said um, so you're driving down this road and it's pretty dangerous and there's a certain Curve coming up, and he gave him the grade and all this stuff. And he says, "How close would you drive to that curve before you felt you were too close, right?" And so, what does the first driver do? He says, "Okay, well, I would go within two feet." The next driver, I'd go within a foot and a half. The next driver, I'd go within a foot, right? Because everyone's trying to prove something. And then the last person said, "I'd stay as far away from that thing as I possibly could." the Story goes that that's the one that was hired because we don't need to build our own ego up, and we don't need to look at things and go, well, that's not really that dangerous. The reality is, is there's so much danger because Satan is out to attack us. Praise the Lord, we know we've won. Christ has won. He has victory in this. But our role within the church is that we are careful, that we watch, that we see what's happening, and when people come in and they twist and turn things that scripture says, that we go, no, we will not go down that road. We will not. And So as I was praying and thinking about where to go, this is how I wanted to start the new year. I know it's not quite the new year yet, but we're getting there. Is that Banff Park Church will always exist to glorify God through the preaching of his word, not our own. And I want... I want to promise you that I'm going to do that to the best of my abilities and I want you to promise me that you're going to call me on anything that's rubbish because that's how we grow through the word of God. We are called by God. We are kept by Christ. The gospel is not about us, but the gospel is for us because of his love for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder in this text. And as we look forward to next week to to talk about the flip side of that coin, our responsibility and, and understanding what salvation is and how you keep us, and as we kind of go into that in more detail, would you remind us over and over and over that the message of the gospel is for us, but it's about you. Help us to have a proper and healthy understanding of who we are and who you are. Help us to not desire to turn things more about us so that we could chase after the things that we want. But would we recognize that the only thing that will satisfy is us chasing after you? So God, would you be at work in our hearts and in our minds? Would we study scripture so that we understand what is true and what is right? And God, I just pray that you would give us the wisdom and the discernment to spot the lie, to spot the error, to spot these hidden reefs that come, to not think that there's not so much danger there, but to recognize what is wrong, what is right, and help us to stay as far away from what is wrong as possible so that we can honor and glorify you with how we live and how we act and how we talk. God, thank you for your word. The only thing that we know is of you that is without error, that is perfect, that is written for us so that we might understand who you are. May we put our faith, may we put our hope, may we put our trust in the fact that you have spoken everything to us that we need to understand who you are. God, we love you. We thank you for this morning now. As we go and as we spend time visiting and and having snacks together. God, we just pray that you would be at work within this community. That you would be at work within this church body and that we would grow in our faith and our understanding of you. God, you alone are worthy of praise. Amen.